0: Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to The Cinematic Crypt, a movie podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and classic coroner Rosalie Kicks, me. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together. Goblins and ghouls, as you may recall from my previous episode, I spent a week toiling away in my laboratory working on various projects one of which is my amusement park slasher script. I made some progress with the help of my film pal, Nick Nelson, and started my outline for this new venture, and I couldn't be more thrilled. Working as a writer for the next week sent chills down my spine. Never in my life have I felt so free, like a bat flying under the pale moonlight in the countryside. experimental week of working as a writer, I was fortunate enough to meet with my film pal Hunter Bush and Allison Yacoulas. I've mentioned these fellow crypt dwellers on previous episodes as they were a spectacular help with the making of my short film with Katie McBrown, Pizza Man. Along with so many of our other fiendish film pals, we made a hauntingly grand movie. Hunter and I are in the beginning stages of creating the blueprints for the filming of a movie hosted show entitled The Last Movie Palace. Goblins and Ghouls, coming this fall, your favorite little gravedigger will be visiting you via your television and computer screens. Much like this very program, I will be sharing with you the mystifying stories and films of Hollywood's bygone era, along with tantalizing facts, tales of corpses and cadavers that should not be forgotten, but instead revered for their contributions to film. There may even be a bit of magic on the side, mwah. And since the flicks will be from the public domain, you'll be able to screen the show from your very own crypt. I am also happy to report that compliments of my assistant, Hunter. I now have the most fantastic host name, Betsina Belfry, you can call me Bats for short. Moa, I will continue to share tidbits of information with you here, but beware—this is not something you want to miss, my goblins and ghouls. The program will be made available exclusively to Movie John's Patreon supporters and will premiere this October. Visit patreon.com/slash/moviejohn, and that's M-O-V-I-E. J.A.W.N., as you don't want to make a grave mistake and miss this fantastic program. For a mere $5 a month, you will be able to join Hunter and I, and some other fellow fiendish film pals, in the last movie palace.
1: Well, good evening, my, my dear students, and of course, friends of science and those of the higher order. You're going to see me tonight as you have never seen me before, totally out of my normal intellectual personality, so to speak. That's your cue, Charlie. <laughs> what we have here is a little machine, of course, just like something you may have at home, like your video recorders, right? except it's a craniological recorder. It records impulses from brain waves. And just like your machine can dub one picture or one sound right through the air and keep impulses on a tape, this can take from the section of the brain that gives talent, can actually take that talent and put it into the brain of another person.
0: Spooks and creeps, you just heard the voice of Morgus the Magnificent, A horror host who hailed from the hauntingly, spooktacular New Orleans, Louisiana. Crypt dwellers, before we get to our main attraction, let's spend some time in the cemetery, shall we? Let's pay respects to horror hosts from days gone by in a segment I've entitled Grave Time. This evening, we shall visit the gravesite of the maddest, mad scientist about town, Morgus the Magnificent.
1: All right, we've got it up to 900 megawatts. Okay, keep it at 900 megawatts. It's coming in clearly. Okay. Oh, hi, friends. Well, we're now in complete communications with the initiates of the higher order who are coming to our planet tonight. I know this sounds almost impossible to believe, but... Uh, We have been transmitting through the Margusso Intercelestial communicator, and of course it is piped into my computer here, Eric, the Eon Research Infinity computer. And Eric, of course, is uh, taking the hieroglyphic uh, communications. Of course, they send everything in hieroglyphics. As a matter of fact, I suppose that's how the Egyptians started out. They probably brought the hieroglyphic uh, language down to the Earth. But uh, we're taking a readout. Uh, Eric, are you getting all of that?
2: Yes,
0: Master. Sidney Noel Rudeau was also known as Sid Noel, and was born December 25th, 1929, in New Orleans, Louisiana, and would go on to portray Dr. Momus Alexander Morgus Esquire, or simply Morgus the Magnificent, a TV horror host that made his first appearance in the late 1950s and continued through the 1980s. He got his start in the entertainment biz as a radio DJ in the late 1950s at WWL Radio. In 1958, WWL-TV purchased the Shock Package, and they held auditions for the role of the host. Noel easily won the part and agreed to accept under two conditions— One, he wanted to remain anonymous. He did not want to reveal his true identity. Legend says he attempted to keep his life so private that his children were not even aware who Morgus truly was. The second condition of taking on the role was that he would be able to make the show humorous, starting with his character name. Momus comes from the god of ridicule, The name Alexander he referred to as being the biggest egomaniac in history, while Morgus was a combination of morgue and disgusting, of course. He was said to have descended from a long line of scientists dating back to Morgus I, who was apparently the architect of the first pyramid in Egypt. After mastering calculus at the age of five, his scientist parents sent him to school in the Caribbean, where he graduated with honors. He claimed to be the author of several books, such as New Hope for the Dead and Molecules I Have Known. The primary movie fair on Morgus's program, known as House of Shock, was that of the science fiction and horror genres. His character was a bumbling mad scientist known for being wacky and performing bizarre experiments and creating weird inventions. The experiments served as bookend pieces within his show and typically would end in disaster. He appeared disheveled with shaggy hair, a Neanderthal brow, large lumpy nose, snaggle teeth and a filthy lab coat with stains that were said to be mementos and recognition of his failed experiments, including a large red handprint on his back, which he felt also served as a symbol for the world pushing him down. While developing the character, Sid kept in mind three things. One, to display an ego that wouldn't quit. Two, a satirical look at science and academia, and lastly, a focus on the common man. Essentially, he was perceived by many as an egomaniacal professor who strived for recognition. He would first start visiting people via their living room TV sets on January 3, 1959, from his New Orleans laboratory set over an abandoned ice house in Pirate's Alley of the French Quarter. Within four months of House of Shock hitting the airwaves, it was a major hit, requiring the TV station to install 10 phone lines that they used to record messages for Morgus, which said he was too busy in the lab to come to the phone, but appreciated the calls. Morgus was accompanied by his assistant, Chopsley, portrayed by a local deputy of the St. Bernard's Sheriff Department. His name was Tommy George, a towering hooded six foot seven executioner. Chopsley was a former medical school classmate of Morgus and the subject of one of his early experiments involving a face transplant surgery. Sadly, this left the poor fellow without a face Apparently, he mistakenly laughed before the procedure was healed, and as a result, he wore a full face mask at all times with a zippered mouth through which he could eat. Chopsley would be subjected to degradation and other wild experiments, compliments of Dr. Morgus. Something I learned in doing my research, Goblins and Ghouls, was that Chopsley was in a band known as the Saxons. His career as Morgus's assistant began after he entered a horror hop contest, in which he won dressed as Count Dracula, the award being that he would get to appear on the Morgus show. Well, this never came to fruition until once again running into Morgus at another sock hop. Well, the two hit it off and a partnership was born. Tommy was a very dedicated horror aficionado who forged his own executioner's axe for the program and even went as far to design his own costume for the show. Other characters appeared as well, such as Mrs. Alma Fetish, Morgus's longtime and long suffering landlady, who appeared in the 80s version of the show. Another character from the revival show in the 80s was Morgus's manager. Wiley Fay, who attempted to find exposure for Morgus and business opportunities, which often ended in failure. Besides Chopsley, though, a character that was involved from the start of the show was a talking skull named Eric, portrayed by another local, Ed Horner, known for his work in dinner theater. Eric would introduce the show, as you heard earlier, my goblins and ghouls. His intro would be accompanied by music, that contained an effect of turning a frequency oscillator up and down. Eric was known to inflate Morgus's ego by paying him compliments and in many ways being a yes-man, often referring to Morgus as Master. There's
1: a flying saucer coming here. We've got a helicopter for you, Dr. Morgus. But the flying saucer's coming. Come on Tuesday next week, i Morgus the Magnificent,
2: takes us
1: into the realm
2: of science. Good night. Pleasant dreams.
0: (laughs) Following the intro from Eric, House of Shock would often open with a sound of Dr. Morgus exclaiming about a failed experiment to his assistant Chopsley, and suddenly comes to realize he's on the air and proceed to invite all the doctors and scientists out there to get their notebooks ready. One of his infamous inventions was the Morgosel, a perpetual cardio machine that was guaranteed to make you live 200 years. Often his contraptions and experiments were known to fail, which led him to be blaming the entire catastrophe on Chopsley, who just so happened to be a mute so he, of course, couldn't defend himself. Morgus would later be known for more than just experiments and achievements in science. He would go on to inspire a local hit record in 1959 entitled Morgus the Magnificent, performed by Frankie Ford and Mac Rebenach under the name Morgus and the Ghouls. The song told the tale of teens at the time that didn't go on dates because they stayed home to watch Morgus instead. Morgus would also go to star in his own film, The Wacky World of Dr. Morgus, in 1961, which may have been the first movie built around a horror host character. The
1: Wacky World of Dr. Morgus. Morgus Morgusatron Electro Instant People Machine. A creation long awaited by the masterminds of science. And I, the Magnificent, humbly offer it to the betterment of mankind. Starring
3: Sid Knoll as Dr. Morgans. Co-starring Dan Barton, the reporter. Gene Tesla, the new Mata Harry. We can actually dehydrate a living human being into powder and then bring him back to life again. Take me to him. The Wacky World of Dr. Morgan.
0: The film was the first introduction of Morgus's instant people machine, a creation of his that could transform people into sand and then back into their original form. The premise of the film was that Morgus was being investigated by a reporter known as Pencils, as well as a foreign agent who sought to enter the United States by using this device. Of course, goblins and ghouls. I watched this flick, and let's just say it's an interesting time at the movies. Shortly after the success of the film, Morgus packed his bags and headed north to the Mitten State. That's right, Michigan, landing a hosting spot in Detroit at WJBK-TV in 1964 on a program entitled Morgus, presents. He managed to become rather popular there as well, even having his own weather program, which appeared every day at five fifty five PM.
4: <laughs> uh,
1: oh hello there my friends of science <laughs> Oh I hope you have your notebooks handy today because I think I am on the brink of discovering the secret to the solid molecule. Oh, somebody's knocking already. Always disturbances. Yes, what is it? Wait. What? What is it? Do not be frightened, doctor. You are not seeing things. What what is it? I am an invisible man. An invisible man? (laughs) Do not look to be too surprised either. Because I think you also are nearing the discovery of the colorless molecule well as a matter of fact I'm working on it but, but, but what are you never doing? mind the questions doctor I came here for your help I can't return to a visible state because part of my memory disappeared with me and I can't calculate the formula for reinstatement and you better know the Formula. Oh, oh, yeah, well, don't worry, I know... I'll well, get busy on it right away. Yeah, yes, sir, yes, well, look, well, why don't you just sit down here in the chair, uh, you, you just, where are you? Oh, sit down right here in the chair and, and make, make yourself comfortable. All right, you had better know what you're doing or you'll live to regret it. All right, don't, don't worry, just give me a few seconds, uh, <sighs> you just cool it right there. <laughs> uh, we can't forget to give you the weather, folks, you know, no matter what we, what we get involved in, friends, we always give you that... Morgus kind of weather. You just listen right there. She's coming right out.
0: Forecasts were done locally and would include a peek at Morgus's weather machine. His time in Detroit was short-lived, as in 1965 he was back in New Orleans on WWL-TV and for the rest of his career would remain there off and on. In 1970 until 71, the program moved to afternoons and unfortunately the show suffered for it, and Sid found himself getting rather fatigued with the show and quit in 1971. By the 1980s, he achieved a cult status, and a fan club was formed known as Morgus, which stood for Morgesian Order to Revive a Glorious Understanding of Science. The club was run by a dude named Robert Fuller Jr. who ran a singing telegram outfit. Another club was also formed a bit later, which was organized by a couple of ladies that also produced a quarterly newsletter. It was, however, on January 17, 1987, when Morgus would return to the airwaves with Eric and Chopsley, with some minor changes. Eric now was attached to a computer to show that he became a bit more technologically advanced, At this time, the show would also receive syndication via WPIX-TV, Channel 11, in New York City, and appeared on five other stations nationwide. I must mention here, Goblins and Ghouls, that Chopsley was actually replaced at some point by another actor as, unfortunately, Tommy George passed away. Sadly, the show would not catch on outside of New Orleans and would be canceled in 1989. Morgus passed away on August 27th, 2020, but continues to inspire and influence many horror hosts and fans of the spooky and sci-fi genre, including your favorite little gravedigger. I'm so thrilled to have gotten to know him, and I hope you are too. I leave you now with a clip from his hit song, Morgus the Magnificent, performed by Morgus and the Ghouls. Mwah.
2: Your attention. Your attention. This is Marga's the Magnificent.
1: On Saturday night, when I go for my date, my baby and I just sit and wait for Vargas the Magnificent.
5: Go out
1: to Rolling Rock We get our kicks from the house and shop He's got shaggy hair and a graveyard stare Vampire blood built everywhere That's Marga's Magnificent
2: And now our feature presentation
0: all right film pals time to grab your cape and get comfortable with a cocktail it is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program follow me but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt Today's episode will mark the fourth and final entry in the series, Heavenly Mistakes. Through the course of this series, I have been examining films in which a grave mistake was made by the afterworld. In episode 24, I uncovered the 1941 fantasy romantic comedy, Here Comes Mr. Jordan. The second film in the series, episode 25, featured the 1946 Pal and Pressburger film, A Matter of Life and Death. And in my previous program, episode 26, I examined the 1947 film, Down to Earth, which was a sequel of sorts to Here Comes Mr. Jordan and featured the corpse of Rita Hayworth. This evening, I shall uncover and examine the 1943 Technicolor flick, Heaven Can Wait, starring Gene Tierney, Charles Coburn, and our corpse of interest, Donna Michi. Born Dominic Felix Amici on May 31st, 1908 in Kenosha, Wisconsin, he would come to be known as simply Don Amici. Known for his dapper, charming style, and debonair mustache, he would be given the nickname of the Latin lover and go on to be one of Hollywood's most revered leading men, who for me just screams the epitome of tucks and tails, my goblins and ghouls. He would abandon a career as a lawyer and take up acting, which he found to be more interesting and exciting. Amici studied dramatics at Marquette University and found his first break when a lead role was abandoned in a production entitled Excess Baggage. A friend of his convinced him to try out for the role, which would kick off his career in acting. He would make his film debut in 1935 in the film Dante's Inferno, produced by the Fox Corporation, who would later turn into 20th Century Fox, and they would offer him a contract. It was with 20th Century Fox that he would play Alexander Graham Bell in a biopic of sorts. This led him to gain much popularity, so much so that during the 30s and 40s, the telephone would often be referred to as Amici, with phrases being said such as, you're wanted on the Amici. More
3: than 75 years ago, a man invented the telephone. His name was Alexander Graham Bell. Everybody knows that. But who knows precisely what Mr. Bell had in mind for his ingenious new device? Who knows? The chances are your true personality will go out over the telephone just as Mr. Bell had in mind. For he was not only an inventive man, but a man of great vision. And even though his first telephone message was sent quite by accident, Mr. Watson, come here. I want you. Mr. Bell, I heard you. I heard every word you said distinctly. You said, Mr. Watson, come here. I want you. Why, so I did. Oh, it's a wonderful day for you, Mr. Bell. Everything you've worked for. Every dream has come true. It works, Mr. Bell. It works. Yes, I... I dare say you're right, Watson. Our experiments have opened up a... A new age of communications. There'll be a day when, when people will think nothing of conversing through instruments such as we have developed. You mean as an everyday occurrence? Well, that's what I had in mind. The day will come when, when people will think no more of speaking to someone miles away than as if they were in the same room. Think of its possibilities. Yes, Watson. I can foresee the day when homes will be linked to other homes. Homes to factories, factories to stores. Cities will be joined to other cities. And nations to other nations. But tell me how, Mr. Bell, how can you foretell all these wonders? Well, now, really, who would know better than I? Any resemblance between Alexander Graham Bell and Don Amici was strictly intentional.
0: The clip you just heard was from the 1954 short, What Mr. Bell Had in Mind, and was brought to viewers by Chevrolet car dealers as a way to sell the idea of the telephone and its purpose. Don reprised his 1939 role as Alexander Graham Bell in what would become the famous scene with Dr. Watson and Don remarking, Well, who would know better than I? After Michi's hit with the story of Alexander Graham Bell, he would go on to co-star with Alice Faye in the 1939 film Hollywood Cavalcade, a story about a young performer played by Alice making her way through the early days of Hollywood from her experience of starting out in silent pictures and then moving into talkies. From there, in 1939, he would go on to play Stephen Foster in Swanee River, another biopic about an American songwriter and musician from Pittsburgh. He then did yet another biopic entitled Lillian Russell and rejoined his former castmate Alice Faye in 1940. In the same year, he would go on to co-star with Betty Grable and Carmen Miranda in the musical Down Argentine Way, which tells the story of an American girl on vacation in Argentina who falls for a wealthy racehorse owner. This would mark the first leading role for Betty Grable and start her road to stardom, despite her already having appeared in 31 movies. It also introduced American audiences to Carmen Miranda, who would go on to be known as the Brazilian bombshell. I feel she will definitely be making an appearance on the show sometime in the future. My Goblins and ghouls. It was in 1940 in which Don was voted the 21st most popular star in Hollywood. His career was soaring. He would go on to do several other pictures throughout the 40s, and it was said that in 1944, he reportedly earned $247,677, making him the second highest earner at 20th Century Fox. However, from 1949 to 1983, he would only go on to make five films and instead mainly would take on parts in TV series or radio. With his soothing yet authoritative-sounding voice, he was the perfect fit for this. He would even find himself recognized late in life for his contributions in 1992 when he was inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame. He was heard on such shows as First Nighter Programme, Family Theater, and the Betty and Bob Soap Opera. He would also perform on sketch comedy and variety shows, such as The Chase and Sanborn Hour. Here's a clip from when Don appeared on The Johnny Carson Show, in which Carson plays a clip from one of his hit radio shows, The Bickersons, in which he starred opposite a Francis Langford.
5: You played Alexander Graham Bell. A lot of the younger people said, gee, I don't remember that, because that was a good number of years ago, and in a few moments we're going to play you something that I remember very well. Those of us who grew up in the great radio days, uh, Bergen and McCarthy and Jack Benny and Fred Allen and et cetera and Bob Hope, remember a show you did called The Bickersons. <laughs> yeah. uh, with Francis uh, Langford. with Francis Langford playing Blanche, you played John Bickerson, and the name was absolutely perfect. They were constantly in battle. Yeah. And the wonderful thing about radio when we get to that is that you can sit at home and let your mind be the theater. You didn't have to, on television, you got to build a set and you got to make it look believable. The radio was that wonderful experience of filling in all of the
2: unknown. Everything you you put into it, Uh, if, if there were a million people listening to it, there were a million different leading ladies and a million different leading men, That's right. a million different uh, uh, descriptions of the room in which you were or the scenery, right. outdoor scenery, whatever it was. I miss radio. Oh, well, they're miss they are are
5: playing a lot know. of the shows now on radio. K&X and some of the stations were, were playing some of the great radio shows. Shirley Wood managed to go out, and before we show from Cocoon, I want you to listen to radio. Now, if you don't remember the Bickersons, Blanche uh, and John were... They were way dated. They predated the bunkers many, many years. Yes. But they really went at each other. And usually Blanche woke up John early in the morning to talk about something. John was known to have a drink occasionally, right? <laughs> uh, and we'll just let your mind kind of wonder now, because for the next about a minute, we are going to... The snoring we'll do later. because Usually she woke him up, but I'm going to ask you to do that after this tape. All right. uh, picture your mind is three in the morning. Blanche Bickerson has... Just wakened her husband, John. Just nothing to. Why watch didn't she show night. up for the party, John? I told you I got stuck at the office. <laughs> I'd like to believe that. What were you doing? Working. Sure. That's always the first excuse. If I don't fall for that, you have a second excuse, then a third, and a fourth. What were you working on? A fifth. <laughs> you better not be so bold, John Thickety. For your information, I got a call from Louise Shaw. What about it? she saw you coming out of a saloon at midnight she saw you and i don't deny
3: it i'm not denying it
5: why were you coming out of a saloon at midnight
3: because i had to come out sometime
5: (laughs) i'm warning you john you better give up that habit every time you go into a saloon the devil goes in with you
3: well if he does he pays for his own drinks (laughs) good night
5: no no what time did you leave the office
6: I left the office at 11 o'clock, I caught the bus at 11.05, I got off at 11.54, I stopped at the cocktail bar and bought a corkscrew and waited an hour.
5: Why? Because
3: it was pouring outside.
5: What were you doing? Pouring inside. (laughs) I mean, boom, 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 boom. I want to thank...
0: It was 1983 when he would take on a role in the John Landis film, Trading Places, about a snobby investor and a con artist that, well, trade places. He co-starred with Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd, and Ralph Bellamy. This appearance would create a comeback for Don's career and then lead him to co-star in the 1985 Ron Howard picture, Cocoon, which would lead him to winning the Best Supporting Actor Award.
5: Nominated for Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role are
0: Don Amici in Cocoon. Klaus Maria Brandauer in Out of Africa. William Hickey in Fritzi's Honor. Robert Loggia in The Jagged Edge. Eric Roberts in Runaway Train. And the winner is Donna Meachie in Cocoon.
2: It would please me very much if everyone that made a creative contribution to Cocoon would stand here with me in spirit, because they deserve to be here. And to them, I give my deep, deep thanks. To all you members of the Academy, this esteemed gentleman here says that you have given to me your recognition. You've given to me your love. You have given to me, and I hope I have earned, your respect. For all these, I am deeply grateful. Thank you.
0: Amici was married to Honor Prendergast from 1932 until her death in 1986, and they had six children together. He lived a long, fulfilling life, Dying on December 6th, 1993, at the age of 85, in Scottsdale, Arizona, at his son Don Jr.'s home. He would be cremated and his ashes buried at an unmarked grave in Iowa.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, I invite you to a brownstone mansion on Fifth Avenue in Old New York. Meet the Van Cleves one of the most amusing families I've ever known. Let me present them individually. First, the charming and unworldly Mr. and Mrs. Van Cleve. All their lives, they believed babies were brought by the stork. Next, their son, Henry. His collar was stiff, but his ideas were flexible. Grandpa Van Cleave not only founded the family, he confounded it too. The flower of the Van Cleves was cousin Albert, a geranium. While Mr. and Mrs. Strable of the Kansas Strables represented the upholstered part of the family. But the jewel of the Van Cleve household was Martha, a paragon of beauty, culture, and virtue, but a nice girl in spite of it. I met these delightful people in Ernst Lubitsch's romantic comedy, Heaven Can Wait. And take it from old Doc Benchley, here is a tonic for everything from your funny bone to your heart.
0: That snippet I just played for you, Crypt Dwellers, was the original trailer for Heaven Can Wait, narrated by combination actor, humorist, and critic Robert Benchley. "Heaven Can Wait is a 1943 Technicolor film that was produced and directed by Ernst Lubitsch. The film tells the tale of a recently deceased man, Henry Van Cleef, played by Don Amici, who finds himself essentially in the lobby of hell, where he strikes up a conversation with Satan, a cordial, lovely chap played by Laird Krager. Henry Van Cleef truly believes he belongs in hell, and he regales Satan in the tale of his life, attempting to convince him so. The movie first opens with a title card resembling cross-stitch lettering. It says, As Henry Van Cleef's soul passed over the Great Divide, he realized that it was extremely unlikely that his next stop could be heaven. And so, philosophically, he presented himself where innumerable people had so often told him to go. When we meet Henry, obviously, at the end of his life, he is aged, wrinkled, and tired. He finds himself personally greeted by His Excellency himself and immediately starts to explain his case.
6: But I can safely say my whole life was one continuous misdemeanor.
4: My dear Mr. Van
6: Cleave, a passport to hell is not issued
4: on generalities. No, I'm afraid you'll have to wait until I have time to study your record. But I must admit you're beginning to interest me, Mr. Van Cleave. I think I can spare the time to listen to your story.
6: Thank you, Your Excellency. Please, sit down. Perhaps the best way to tell you the story of my life is to tell you about the women in my life. Well, let's start with the first woman, my mother. A lovely lady, but prejudiced. She thought I was wonderful. She was the first woman I ever fooled. Then there was my grandmother. She was just as prejudiced as my mother.
0: Oh, a darling. Of course, Satan does not want to jump to any conclusions. He wants to hear all the facts before banishing Henry to eternal damnation. So he agrees to listen to hear what Henry has made out to seem a debauched life. Born in Manhattan on October 25th, 1872, it's easy to see that Henry was born into privilege and spoiled at a young age. Something I'm quite fond of is the way that this story is told, my goblins and ghouls. Throughout the tale, we are consistently going back to Don's birthday, or I should say Henry's birthday, as a way to show the passage of time and his life through the years. Time moves quickly. In Henry's recollection, he shares a story from his youth regarding their family maid and his doting mother, who hires her to help around the house and teach him French lessons. Henry, of course, takes advantage of this naive woman and inevitably costs her her job after the two have a bit of fun involving day drinking. It is this incident that shows not everyone is completely under Henry's spell though. His grandfather, Hugo Van Cleve, played by Charles Coburn, gets to the bottom of the situation and informs Henry's mother and father that not just the maid is at fault for this situation, that Henry had some part in it as well after he finds himself fallen ill from the consumption of too much alcohol.
5: Oh, his French is absolutely perfect, such beautiful grammar.
4: Mademoiselle, at the moment we're not concerned with the young man's linguistic accomplishments.
6: Randolph, don't be harsh. Well,
4: I'm sorry if I seem to have lost my temper, but the occasion is a trying one. If you could only tell us what the child is saying, it might help us to meet the situation. It-
5: Must be contagious disease.
4: Son, step out with me a moment. Good
5: morning. morning, What's going on?
4: Now, son, you still don't know what's the matter with that boy? Father, I wouldn't presume to make a diagnosis. After all, I'm not a man of medicine. Randolph, how old are you? What an odd question, father. I'm 43. Well, I think you are definitely old enough to be told the facts of life. What are you driving at, father? Now, son, don't look at me with those big wandering eyes. It breaks my heart, but I'll have to shatter your childhood illusions. Randolph, my son, there is no Santa Claus, And that child of yours, listen, don't you really know what's the matter with
0: him? Henry doesn't just cause issues for strangers, mind you. There is also his cousin Albert, played by Alan Jocelyn. Quite possibly the complete opposite of Henry in terms of character and personality yet he too is somewhat obnoxious. There's no question here though, these opposites do not attract, especially after what unfolds later in the story between Albert and Henry. We travel to Henry's 26th birthday and he is nowhere to be found, causing much distress from his mother. Upon him finally arriving home, his father decides he will give him a piece of his mind but instead ends up remarking to Henry's mother that this time he only gave him $50, which is much less than the usual amount. Because, according to his father, you can't simply spank a 26-year-old boy. Henry's mother decides she is going to give Henry a piece of her mind, but instead is succumbed to his charms as he regales her in a tale of love at first sight. She isn't one of those musical comedy girls.
6: Oh, no, mother. It's an entirely different kind of music. It's not the hoochie-coochie, it's not the can-can. It's like a waltz by Strauss. Like a minuet by Mozart. Henry, where do you get it from? From you, Mother. Now you must be just. When I was a little boy, you wanted me to believe in fairy tales. And now that one has really happened... You remember that story about the young man? I think he was a shepherd who was walking in the woods... Oh, you've been in the country. No, no, Mother. It happened right on Broadway. Suddenly, the young man saw a big castle, and leaning out of the window was the most beautiful princess. Nothing could stop him. He climbed up the parapet of the castle... Henry, you haven't broken into the Waldorf again. Mother, darling, let's forget the fairy tale. Well, it's about time you grew up. I came here to scold you, and I'm going to do it. Now, look at your cousin, Albert. Not much older than you are, and already a corporation lawyer. Engaged to a lovely girl of a well-known family. Henry, now, this may sound severe, but you've got to pull yourself together and settle down. Mother, I don't think I'll ever find this girl, but if I did, then all your troubles would be over. If she didn't want me to gamble, I wouldn't look at another card. I'd stay home every night. Mother, I might even go to work.
0: Henry, that's wonderful! Unfortunately, Henry doesn't even know the woman's name, or where she is from, or how he will ever find her. In recounting his tale, he first overheard her lying on a telephone to her mother in a department store, which, of course, interested him greatly. He follows her to a bookstore where he poses as a clerk and learns that she is secretly there to purchase a book entitled How to Make Your Husband Happy. Of course, her informing him that she is engaged to be married doesn't stop his advances. I recall the first time in watching this movie that I laughed and laughed about that book. I feel it would have to be the shortest book ever written, my goblins and ghouls, as the first chapter would include a recipe to some poison concoction of sorts in which you would be instructed to add to your husband's morning coffee, and presto, an eternal sleepies has been achieved, in which he will lay in a bunk, tucked in, happy as a clam. Mwah
6: you are. I probably should apologize. I imagine I should have called you madam. No, it's still miss. But not for long, I presume. That's quite right. How much is the book? Oh, we would be only too glad to charge it if you would be kind enough to give me your name and address. Thank you, but I'd rather pay. How much? Uh, It's very expensive. Oh, that's all right. Now, this is against the interests of Mr. Brentano. But since I am, so to speak, your literary confessor, I must be honest with you. Don't buy this book. You don't need it. I'll tell you something much more appropriate for you. Leave your nest and fly away with me. Well, I might buy that book, too. Well, we don't have it in stock right now. But I'd love to discuss the idea with you. And if you like it... I'm afraid I have much time. So please, will you tell me how much is how to make your husband happy? Look at her. Dr. Blossom Franklin. Now, where could a woman like that have found out how to make a husband happy? You certainly don't want to learn anything from her. You're so charming, so young, and so beautiful. I beg your pardon. You shouldn't say such thing. You see, miss, when selling literature, one gets poetic. And you must forgive me if I take poetic license once in a while. I'd rather not discuss it any further. And if if you don't mind, I'd like to buy this book. I do mind. Now, I imagine I'm the man you're going to marry. I couldn't imagine any such thing. Well, what's the matter with me? You think I'm that terrible? Please, I just came in here to buy a book. That's all. I understand. But for the sake of discussion, let's say we are getting married. Believe me, I don't want anybody to tell you how to make me happy. The greatest gift you could bring me is to be just as you are. Adorable. All I want is a book. Stubborn, eh? What? Part my poetic license. If you don't change your attitude, I shall have to complain to your employer. I'm not employed here. I'm not a book salesman. I took one look at you and followed you into the store. If you'd walked into a restaurant, I would have become a waiter. If you'd walked into a burning building, I would have become a fireman. If you'd walked into an elevator, I would have stopped between two floors and we'd have spent the rest of our lives there.
0: Henry believes he may never see this intriguing woman again. Oh, which I must mention is played by the extraordinary Jean Tierney, one of my favorite cadavers, crypt dwellers. You may actually recall her from episode 15, in which I dissected the film The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. Ghost Connection! I seriously need to have her on this program sometime in the future for a dissection. As for Henry, he fortunately does bump into this mystery woman once more, but not in the most fortunate of circumstances. Well, for him at least. He sees her once again at his home for an engagement party, a party to announce her engagement to his obnoxious cousin Albert. Jean Tierney, who we learn is named Martha, hails from Kansas and is the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Strabel, who own a successful meatpacking business. During the party, Martha has a sneezing attack, which causes Albert to become quite upset as it is distracting the singer that is performing for their guests. Upon exiting the main room, she stumbles into Henry once more, and they have a conversation. (sighs)
6: Ever come into my life to make you happy to hold you in my arms forever i'll never be able to look my father in the face i'll never be able to go back to kansas again isn't that wonderful oh i wish i were dead look let's get away let's get married immediately right away tonight you mean a lope that's what i mean but where would it go oh i never did such a thing before i feel so helpless i haven't got a thing with me Oh, I wish I was dead! When Romeo and Juliet ran away from home, they didn't stop to say goodbye. When Leander swam the Hellespont to his beloved, he didn't bother to take a suitcase along. When Tristan falls in
0: love with the soldier, they have to sing for three and a half
6: hours, and all I'm asking you to do is to hop into a cab and drive to the First Justice of the Peace. What are we waiting for?
0: Henry doesn't seem to be too concerned about scandals, for he takes Martha in his arms, and they escape the party and elope. This is by far one of my favorite scenes of the entire film, I guess you could say that your favorite little gravedigger is a hopeless romantic of sorts. The movie proceeds to flash forward, always to the next birthday, October 25th, which now happens to be his anniversary to Martha. We move 10 years into the future. Henry is now 36, and with a son of his own, and very much his father's son. Unfortunately, Martha is nowhere to be seen. Henry departs the breakfast table to read a telegram he received from Martha, informing him that she has left. Of course, he tracks her down with the help of his grandfather. Together they find her at one of the last places he thought he ever would, her parents. With the chaos from their elopement ten years prior, she had not seen her parents in ten years. Martha ran off as she learned that Henry had yet to give up his playboy lifestyle. He convinces her to come back, which frankly I feel is again a really great scene of the film. I love the characters banter back and forth between one another as it comes off as very realistic to me. Two people that have been together for 10 years. Two people that clearly belong together and hit a bump in the road. I also quite enjoy the comedic reaction that Henry's grandpa has when he learns that Martha will be coming back, but they need to escape the Strable estate. Happy anniversary.
6: I'm
0: still too confused. I've, I've got to collect myself.
6: Give her time to make up her mind, Grandpa. She could do that on the train. But what am I going to say to my parents? Send them a telegram. You mean sneak out of the house in the middle of the night? Exactly. Like burglars? Like, like thieves. We did it once before. Why shouldn't we do it again? How many people are lucky enough to have the thrill of eloping twice in one marriage? That's it, that's it! And how many women love their husbands enough to forgive them and take them back and start all over again? Good, good! And how many men love their wives enough to lie and say they're guilty when they've really done nothing wrong? Uh, careful, Henry. careful. Uh, well, at least nothing that amounts to very much. I wouldn't go any further into that. Come, we'd better get started. i I'll see if the course is clear.
0: As we age, life just starts to move a lot faster. And in the case of the film, the passing of time is represented through the various birthday cake images, kind of like a montage of sorts. There are moments where Henry finds his son, well, he's an apple that hasn't fallen far from the tree, as they say, going out for late night drinks and getting entangled with showgirls. Something I need to mention here, goblins and ghouls, is that I'm quite fond of the way that they show the relationship between Henry and Martha over the years. They have grown not to just love one another, but need one another to feel complete. Martha comments to Henry at one point about his paunch and how she knew that it meant he was settling down. And I don't know why, but that silly little moment just really gets me choked up. When the story flashes forward to their 25th anniversary, Henry is looking for Martha as they have a party going on, of course, and he finds her in the room in which they first met, 25 years ago. He learns that she has been seeing someone.
6: Now, who was it?
0: I'll tell you tomorrow.
6: I am not going to leave this room until you tell me. Well, knowing my obstinate little boy, you promise to be sensible and not make a mountain out of a molehill? I promise. Now... Well, you know how women are. We have too much time on our hands and we begin to imagine that there are things wrong with us. And I'm no exception, so I've been going to a doctor, that's all. (laughs) (laughs) Darling, I feel like a fool. Now, I have a confession I must make to you. I really was jealous. Martha, what did you go to the doctor for? What's wrong? Nothing, really. So that's why you came in this room. You weren't feeling well. Darling, is it serious? I tell you, it's nothing at all. Just a little dizzy spell. Darling. Now, you promise to be sensible.
0: Come on, let's dance. Speaking of doctors, I think it is time, crypt dwellers, for our spooky intermission of sorts. Let's pay a visit to the morgue, shall we? To chat cadavers with my fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers. Together, we shall slice open and examine character actor Laird Crager, an actor who specialized in playing eccentric and unusual people. Let's all go to the morgue let's all go to the
7: morgue let's all go to the
0: morgue to get ourselves a cart. Good evening, Dr. Carruthers. Is it safe to come in? Safe? Well, I don't know about that. You never know
7: what might happen here. But of course, you're welcome. Please,
0: come in. Come in. Well, the last time when I came to the door, it sounded like you were entertaining. I heard this sweet, soothing voice, and I didn't want to intrude. It sounded like your mother was visiting. Oh, you you heard that,
7: did you? It, it was just the television.
0: Nothing to think too deeply about. Oh, I I see. Well, you must have had it quite loud. So loud, in fact, I think you woke up the dead.
7: Oh, well, you know, my my
0: hearing isn't what it used to be. I see, I see. So, I wanted you to know, I'm just so thrilled to be back. I I did manage to dig up a corpse on my own last week, but it wasn't the same. You know, being that I'm not a scientist or a doctor like yourself, I'm sure there's something I missed in the coroner's report.
7: Well, I did listen in, and I can assure you, you did a great job. But it is a lot of lifting for one person, so I'm
0: certainly glad you're back. Me too. So, who's on the docket today, Dr. Carruthers?
7: Well, I'm very excited this evening, because this fella has officially become a new favorite actor of mine. I'm talking about the one, the only, Laird Kriegar.
4: How do you do, Mr. Van Cleve? Good afternoon, Your Excellency. Very kind of you to receive. Not at all. Oh, please, sit down. Thank you. I hope you'll forgive me, but we're so busy down here. Really, sometimes it looks as if the whole world is coming to hell. Frankly, I haven't had an opportunity to familiarize myself with your case. When did it happen, Mr. Van Cleve? Tuesday. To be exact, I died at 9.36 in the evening.
6: I trust you didn't suffer much. Oh, no, no, not in the least. I had finished my dinner. A good one, I hope. Oh, excellent, excellent. I ate everything the doctor forbade. And then, well, to make a long story short, shall we say, I fell asleep without realizing it. And when I awakened, there were all my relatives speaking in low tones and saying nothing but the kindest things about me. Then I knew I was dead.
4: I presume your funeral was satisfactory.
6: Well, there was a lot of crying, so I believe everybody had a good time. It would have been an ideal funeral if Mrs. Cooper Cooper, a friend of the family, hadn't volunteered to sing The End of a Perfect Day. You see, all my life I had succeeded in avoiding Mrs. Cooper Cooper's coloratura, and this undoubtedly was her revenge.
4: Mr. Van Cleve, I can see that you have a sensitive, cultivated ear. Thank you. Then let me warn you. The music down here is anything but pleasant. Beethoven, Bach, Mozart, you hear them only... above.
0: Oh, this pleases me to hear that you've found a new favorite corpse to admire. Well, let's not waste any time. Let's slice him open. Why yes. Scalpel, please.
7: We shall begin with discussing five characteristics that made this particular corpse a character. Number one, an unconventional scene stealer. Number two, his towering height and considerable frame. Number three, he is known for his sinister roles. Number four, he is suave with a touch of culture. And number five, his everlasting ambition.
0: Why yes, this is a character corpse that has most definitely left an impression on me. You may recall from episode 19, in which I uncovered the corpse of Carol Landis. To examine the film, I wake up screaming. Laird was also in that film, and coincidentally, Carol and Laird both died rather young. Carol was 29 years of age in 1948 when she died, and Laird died at the age of 30 in 1944.
7: Yes, I absolutely do remember him in that film. He was rather unnerving,
0: wasn't he? Oh yes, he was often lurking in the shadows, which I have to say is much fun. (laughs) But, Sadly, Laird only left behind 16 film credits as his acting career only got started four years prior to his death in 1944.
7: Yeah, that is really unfortunate, but let me tell you, I'm going to watch them all. I actually watched three of his movies this week, and I think he is just fantastic. I really recommend The Lodger, which is a Jack the Ripper story, that has loads of atmosphere, and one scene in particular that I'll never forget. And I also recommend Hangover Square, where he plays a tortured artist who just broke my heart. In fact, to be honest, he's so interesting that I will even watch the one where he plays a pirate, which is typically a no for me.
0: Huh. I didn't know you had this thing about pirates. Nah. No, thank you. I appear to have to catch up on a lot of his films. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but Laird Crager was actually born in Philadelphia, the city of your favorite little gravedigger.
7: Yeah, that is very interesting to know, because he sounds right at, shall we say, home in a British accent instead of a Philly one. And actually, that's one of my favorite traits about him, his voice. He's very soft-spoken, with an elegant poise, and he has a very deliberate way of speaking. I wish that he would have been able to do some more
0: radio work. Oh, that would have been fabulous, I'm sure. He did have such a great voice, it was so distinct, and I imagine it would have worked well on the airwaves. Now, something that I recently learned about Laird that I absolutely love about him was that he was a theater usher at Grauman's Chinese Theater in 1937, and I too once worked at a movie theater and ushed, worked at the concession stand and at the box office. It was one of my favorite jobs. I love
7: that. I've never gotten to work in a theater myself, but I've definitely haunted them, like a phantom.
0: Oh, yes, it's quite the perfect place to be a ghost, I must say. (laughs) You may recall in I Wake Up Screaming, he played the detective who found himself rather obsessed with the Carol Landis' character who was murdered. He actually attempts to frame an innocent man because of his obsession, and he was rather menacing in the role. I also learned he was a version of The Lodger in 1944, which also starred a previous character corpse of ours, our buddy George Saunders. And Laird played the role of The Lodger in the film, and apparently it was quite unsettling. So much so that 20th Century Fox was hoping to have him star in other type villain roles, but unfortunately he passed away. I haven't seen his rendition, but you know I love Hitch's 1927 flick, as I'm rather smitten with Ivor Novello. What did you think of him in *Having Kim Wait? Well, I
7: gotta say, it almost did the whole movie a disservice to start with Laird, because then I just wanted to see him the whole way through. He was so enjoyable, I just found myself waiting around for him to show up again. I really loved the idea of matchmaking in Hell. And when he presses that red button to get rid of the lady, well that was just a boss move. But really in the end... His Satan character is much more gracious than lots of God characters
6: written out there. I beg your pardon, Your Excellency? Uh, just a moment. I'm Edna Craig.
4: Oh, yes, I have your record here. You'll be taken care of in just a moment.
6: Really, I don't want to seem rude, but I don't think I belong here. Just Please a don't a misunderstand moment. me. I think it's a charming place, isn't it? Henry Van Cleve.
4: You know Edna Craig? I'm sorry, madam. I seem to be at a loss.
6: Oh, Henry, think back. Many, many years. The little brownstone house around the corner from the old Waldorf. Oh, Marmaduke Harrison's party. We were all dressed as children. And you came as uh, little Lord Fauntleroy. And they wheeled you in in a baby carriage. Little Constantinople. Oh, Henry. No girl in New York walked on two more beautiful legs than you. Little Constantinople. Well, Henry, I still walk and on the same two legs. <laughs> and I'm sure they're still as beautiful. Well, Henry, I'll let you be the judge of that. <laughs>
4: ah! Those things are better left to memory. But I must admit you're beginning to interest me, Mr. Van Cleve. I think I can spare the time to listen to your story. Thank you, Your Excellency. Please sit down.
0: So true, I I have to agree with you that I wish he would have appeared more in the film, but the little that you do see of him and uh, Michi is so grand. I Uh love their interactions together. And this may seem odd, but I felt Laird just had such a calming presence as Satan. And to your point, you just don't see Satan portrayed in this way. Mm -hmm. And I love how he just comes off as as this regular chap, like someone I would grab a drink with and talk about the good old days. I was also quite enamored with his attire and hair. He kind of almost had like a Dracula hairstyle going on. Yeah,
7: I agree. And I really can't picture anyone else in this role now that I've seen him in it. And you know, something else I really admire about him is his ability to play characters beyond his years. And I think that this is a talent quite particular to him. I think we're all familiar with actors playing roles much younger than they really are, like all the 30 year olds who play high school and college students but it's less common to see someone so young have the gravitas to take on such mature roles and project beyond his actual life experience as someone in his 20s and i just think that
0: is just grandy Yes, I agree, most definitely. It's an excellent point, Doctor. Yes, this was that's quite interesting that he was able to do that. I do think the end of his life, though, is quite sad. Did you happen to read anything about his death?
7: I did, and I won't forgive Hollywood for what they did.
0: Yeah, it's really unfortunate. Apparently, Laird really did not want to fall in a stereotype as he wanted to have a more diverse acting career. So he really wanted to be a romantic leading man and he decided to partake in an unsupervised diet. He went from 300 pounds to 200 pounds, which inevitably was more than his body could handle. Yes, and
7: looking at the coroner's report I have here, it says that after his crash diet for his last role, He had undergone surgery for a severe stomach disorder and sadly his young heart simply gave out only days after his operation and he was survived
0: by his mother. So sad and Hollywood is just wretched.
7: Yeah it really is and the thing I hate the most is that there are the same pressures today. There's this pressure from society that there should be a quote-unquote normal body size, and anyone bigger than that has to change. And it's awful. I wish that this is something we can all collectively move forward from. Can we just accept that people have different sized bodies without trying to change it, or even discuss it? I don't try to change someone's eye colour, so why would I want them to change their body? I'm really sad that Laird had to handle This pressure, on top of the fact that he was a queer man in Hollywood, at a time when this was still heavily covered over, so this poor guy, he didn't stand a chance to be himself in that world. But he sure left his mark on those of
0: us who appreciate who he really was. I concur, Doctor Carruthers. I concur. It's sad that we can't just accept people for the creature they are, and who they want to be. I read that Vincent Price delivered the eulogy at his funeral. Apparently, the two were great friends, as Vincent would have him over for dinner quite often, and Laird found him to be a most excellent chef. And you may recall when I uncovered Vincent Price in episode 18 that he wrote some cookbooks and was fond of being in the kitchen. I actually just ordered one of his books. Uh, Cooking price-wise, it has been reprinted. Oh, really? I'm curious to hear what it's like. Will you share a recipe when you get it? Oh, of course, of course. And from what I understand is he does cook with a lot of like meat and, and fish. Mm-hmm. And that sort of thing. And being a vegetarian, though, there's so many options now available. So, of course, I will be making some changes, but we'll be sticking mostly to his recipes. I'm sure you'll be able to doctor it up. Yes.
7: Imagine going to a dinner party with Vinny and Laird. We should try this sometime.
0: We could start with the seance. See what happens. Oh, we must try this sometime, old chap. It would be divine. You know I'm always up for a good (laughs) seance. So we really have dug up a lot of corpses together.
7: It has been so thrilling. Oh, I agree. And I feel that we have so many more
0: to uncover as well. Oh, definitely. Well, before we tuck Laird in, I did want to share this quote with you because I believe it speaks to how much he loved acting. Which pleased me that he had the opportunity to do something he loved, even if his life was short. In a 1940s press release about his introduction to theater as a page boy, he said, I never wanted to be anything but an actor after that. There have been times, though, when I've wished my ambition wasn't so firmly fixed. Hmm.
7: Well, that's wonderful. I'm so glad that he was able to live his dreams even if only for a short while well it's been lovely spending some time with you laird i do hope you rest peacefully good
1: night good night (laughs) and now on with the show
0: Welcome back, my goblins and ghouls. I hope you enjoyed the brief intermission to the morgue. We return for the conclusion of my examination of Heaven Can Wait, starring the corpse of interest, Don Amici.
6: Martha, what did the doctors say?
0: Listen, dear, if I take five drops three times a day,
6: and if you don't worry about me too much, we'll both live to celebrate our golden anniversary. Now, come on, let's dance. I didn't know it then, but this was our last anniversary. It was the last time we danced together. There were only a few more months left for Martha. And she made them the happiest of our lives together.
0: I absolutely love the scene in which Martha and Don dance alone together. It sends a chill down my spine, as it is a reminder of my own wedding, in which right after Benjamin and I said our vows, we snuck away from everyone and had a moment to ourselves, all alone. We were both filled with excitement about what was to come and enjoyed that moment before the chaos. After Martha passes, it is witnessed how much Henry truly misses her. He seems to age more rapidly, which I must comment here, I'm so impressed with the makeup within this film. In recently watching Cocoon, the picture he made in 1985, it is quite uncanny how on point they were with aging Don Michi. I know I have mentioned many favorite scenes of mine, which I suppose is the reason I wanted to share this film with you, my goblins and ghouls, as I feel there are numerous moments that are just grand within the film. But I do have yet another favorite, and that is when Henry describes a dream he had right before he drifts off to sleep and enters the afterworld.
6: What was that dream all about? Oh, I was having such a good time. Just open your mouth. What was that all about? Oh, yes. The door opened, and a man stepped out of a rowboat. He said, Henry, I've come to take you on a trip from which you'll never come back. Please, don't get excited. And I said, my good fellow, if I ever take a trip like that, it'll be in a deluxe cabin and not in a dinky little rowboat that doesn't even have a bar. So I threw him out, rowboat and all. Good, good. And what do you think he did? He came back with a big luxury liner floating on an ocean of whiskey and soda. And instead of funnels, they were big, cigars. And on top of the bar, sitting in a lifeboat, was the most beautiful blonde wearing a merry widow costume. She dived into the whiskey and swam right over to my bedside. Henry, she said, how about a little dance? And the man from the boat took an accordion out of his pocket, and he played the merry widow waltz. The girl held her arms out to me, and she started to dance. Well, with him playing and her dancing, and me up to my neck in whiskey anyhow, well, I put my arms around that beautiful girl and was just about to dance with her, when of all people you cut in, you, yes, you,
0: just open your mouth. Oh,
6: go away and take that thermometer with you, oh.
0: I can only hope that for many of us, when the end does come, we find ourselves just drifting off to sleep peacefully. What happens next in the film? Well, I think you may just need to watch the motion picture yourself to find out, crypt dwellers. Muah. Over the years, there have been several unrelated films with the same title, Heaven Can Wait. I can't speak to those other flicks, as I haven't seen them. It was initially said, though, with this film, it was written for Frederick March, or Rex Harrison in mind for the lead. When Don Amici was cast, Ernst Lubitsch was quite disappointed, feeling the studio was attempting to just capitalize on this casting for commercial reasons. Later, Lubitsch would go on to recant his statement as he was won over by Don's dedication and professionalism while making the picture. In a 1983 interview, A Conversation with Don Amici, he went on record to say that this was the favorite of all the films he worked on. I haven't seen many of his movies thus far. I did, however, see Cocoon recently, and well, Goblins and Ghouls, his performance in that does not even come close to what he accomplished in Having Can Wait, so I completely understand his sentiment. The picture would go on to receive three Academy Award nominations for Best Cinematography, Best Director, and Best Picture. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're interested in checking out Heaven Can Wait, it is available for rent via a quick search of the internets. I personally own the Criterion Edition and highly recommend picking it up if you are the physical media type. This closes out the series of Heavenly Mistakes. In my next episode, I will start a new series, which I have entitled Crafty, Cunning, Conniving, Charlatans. This series will consist of four motion pictures that spotlight the swindling ways of some of my favorite Hollywood con artists. In my first entry of the series, I will uncover the corpse of Joan Bennett and be joined by my fellow classic Corner vampire's cousin, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, to autopsy character corpse Edward G. Robinson in the 1945 noir thriller, Fritz Lang's Scarlet Street. Hope you tune in. Until then, please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or anywhere you snag pods. Give us a rating and review to help other goblins and ghouls find the show. If it is a kind review, I may even read it on air. Take note, goblins and ghouls, a raving review may keep you from finding an early grave. So leave a review or send us an email. Don't be a stranger. I want to know what you think. Drop your favorite little gravedigger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at cinematiccrypt or via postal mail. I will always write back and include a personalized epitaph. You can write to, attention, Movie John. P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA 19145. My only request is that you don't send me any animal brains. Shout out to my Canadian film pal and fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the tunes you hear on this program. Also, thanks to fellow movie genre, The Hollywood Hunk, Hugo Marmugi, for the rad cinematic crypt logo. And if you can't get enough of my soothing voice, make sure to check out I Saw in a Movie, a weekly advice podcast that goes to the cinema for the answer that I co-host with my film pal Ryan Silverstein. And because I don't like to sleep, you can find your favorite little gravedigger on yet another show with my fellow filmmaking pal Katie McBrown on the show entitled Best Friends Forever. Each episode, we invite you to our slumber party where we gab about a movie featuring the heartthrob of the month. All of these shows are part of the Movie John Podcast Network, which you can find more information about at moviejohn.com under MJ Podcasts. You can also subscribe to our print quarterly movie publication. Our spring 2021 issue is now shipping to mailboxes everywhere. This quarter's theme is foreign to me. Gain a new perspective within the pages of Movie John, available for purchase now at moviejohn.com shop. And if you're so inclined and want to support Movie John, please visit our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash moviejohn.
3: Swell of you Treating me so kindly Swell of you I was heading blindly Then your smile Showed me the way to love It's swell of you Just to let me share The spell of you Funny what a pleasant word Will do To bring out the blue Up above
0: When I
3: have you as an inspiration I'm sure to get by and in I promise that I love you dear until the day I die it's well of you
0: It is now time to close the coffin and here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph, my tombstone quote compliments of Henry van Cleef. please forgive me but you can't walk out of my life like that goblins and ghouls. I pity the fool that thinks they can just walk away. For when I am dead, I will be a ghost. No walls, doors, or windows shall keep me out. Just try to get away, just try, moi. Goodbye, film pals.